Hello, Rebels. Today I take you through a survey, a government survey, cost you over 105 grand in taxpayers' dollars. Weirdly, it was done by Elections Canada, but it measured things including Canadians and their belief in various conspiracy theories. Now, that's a weird thing for the government to ask about to begin with. But for Elections Canada, I'm just boggled. But put aside that weirdness and just look at what the theories are that they tested with Canadians and look that some parts of Canadians, 49% of certain demographics, believe certain theories. And it's no surprise. I'll show you that some of the so-called conspiracy theories they talk about, I don't even know if you can call them theories anymore. I think they're sort of conspiracy facts. I'll take you through it. You can judge for yourself. That's up ahead. But before I get to that, let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. You'll get the visual version of this podcast, the video version. I'll take you page by page through the study so you can see it with your own eyes. That's one of the benefits of getting the Rebel News Plus subscription. You also get access to our other video shows, Sheila Gunn-Reed, David Menzies, Andrew Chapados. And the eight bucks a month that you pay that goes to keeping Rebel News independent. You know, we're one of the very few news organizations left that isn't on Trudeau's dole. So just go to rebelnewsplus.com and click subscribe. Thanks very much, and here's today's show. Tonight, Elections Canada did a survey about conspiracy theories. But don't we know that some of them are true? It's October 26th, and this is The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Blacklock's Reporter is one of the best news sites out there in Canada. It's about 300 bucks a year for a subscription, so it's not cheap. But I genuinely get more scoops from them, at least about the federal government, than from any other news source except for, of course, Rebel News. What I like best about Blacklock's is that they don't take any money from any government, so you know they're independent. They're one of the good guys, that's for sure. Anyways, look at this story from Blacklocks today. 40% believe in conspiracies. More than a third of Canadians believe world events are secretly manipulated by a small group of conspirators, says in-house research by Elections Canada. Data show the number of conspiracy theorists ranged as high as 42% in one province. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's even a conspiracy theory anymore, though. I mean, the World Economic Forum in Davos, as in Switzerland, that's where this photo was taken a few years back, George Soros. Soros's former biographer, Christia Freeland. Bizarrely, she's still on the board of the World Economic Forum. Uh, aren't they pretty much explicit that their aim is to manipulate the world? Isn't that sort of their mission statement? They don't use the word manipulate, it's true, but they use euphemisms, advise, shape, influence. These are the folks who did that promo that You'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Those folks, and speaking of happiness, they're the folks who are now promoting unhappiness, telling you it's better than being happy and condemning happiness as toxic positivity. We talked about that on yesterday's show. So yeah, I'm surprised that only 40% believe in that conspiracy. Asked if they, let me I'll read some more from Blacklocks. After, asked if they agreed with the statement Certain significant events have been the result of activity of a small group who secretly manipulate world events. 40% said it was probably true or definitely true. Canadians who rated the claim as truthful included 35% of respondents with university degrees and 49% of indigenous voters. Look, I, I, I'm not alarmed by this. I, I think this sort of skepticism is important and needed these days more than ever. I wish we saw more skepticism in the professions who are paid to be skeptical, like media, like scientists. They're actually the most compliant, obedient people around. Aren't they supposed to be doubting everything? I mean, I've got two words for you. Jeffrey Epstein, remember this? I've had the story for three years. I've had this interview with Virginia Roberts. We would not put it on the air. 
Um, first of all, I was told, who's Jeffrey Epstein? No one knows who that is. This is a stupid story. Um, then the palace found out that we had her whole allegations about Prince Andrew and threatened us a million different ways. Um, we were so afraid we wouldn't be able to interview Kate and Will that we that also quashed the story. And then, um, and then Alan Dershowitz was also implicated in because of the planes. She told me everything. She had pictures. She had everything. She was in hiding for 12 years. We convinced her to come out. We convinced her to talk to us. Um, it was unbelievable what we had. Clinton. We had everything. I, I tried for three years to get it on to no avail, and now it's all coming out, and it's like these new revelations, and I freaking had all of it. I, I, I'm just so pissed right now. Like, every day I get more and more pissed because I'm just like, oh, my God. We, it was, um, what, what we had was unreal. Other women backing it up. Hey, yep. Brad Edwards, the attorney, three years ago, saying, like, aunt, like, we, there will come a day when we will realize Jeffrey Epstein was the most prolific pedophile this country has ever known. And I had it all three years ago. Yeah. And now he's dead. Gee, that's too bad. Um, which is a point that his longtime friend, Bill Gates, keeps mentioning when he's asked, well, he's dead. Have you seen this? Is there a lesson for you, for anyone else looking, looking at this? Well, he's dead. So, uh, you know, in general, you always have to be careful. Uh, yeah, only 35% of university grads believe in elite manipulation. So here's the report that Blacklocks is referring to, as you can see. Uh, it's uh, published by Elections Canada. It's a 45-page survey, cost 105 grand in taxpayers' dollars, paid for through Elections Canada. And they got the results right before the election in August. I, I'm not sure why Elections Canada is doing surveys like this. I suppose it's better than their usual hobby, prosecuting me for writing books criticizing Trudeau. Remember that? Well, we don't have books. You don't have a book? You don't have a book? That thing's a bestseller. went to number two on Amazon.ca. Do you want a copy of the book? No, thanks. Anyways, Elections Canada says the purpose of this poll is, quote, the project aims, among other things, to improve understanding of Canadian electors' opinions on emerging issues that pertain to the administration of elections, trust in electoral administration and other national institutions, sources of information about elections and the electoral process. All right, fair enough, I suppose. Uh, here are some of the results. Confidence in Elections Canada is high. More than three quarters of respondents have confidence in the institution including 27% who have a great deal of confidence. Trust in Elections Canada is higher than confidence in the police, the media, and other levels of government. Yet yeah, saying you're better trusted than the media is sort of like saying you're the tallest short guy, don't you think? Here's another one. And I think this shows why this poll was really done. The spread of false information online is seen as one of the factors that can have the most impact on the upcoming election. More than three quarters of respondents, 78%, think so. Smaller majorities express concern about the influence of a foreign country through social media and other means, 61%, as well as the hacking of voting systems by a foreign country, 55%. Sure, people say fake news is influencing the election, but think about that. I mean, almost everyone says that. So if you say fake news is influencing the election, you're pretty much saying, not me, of course, I know the truth, it's what my neighbor believes is fake. But your neighbor says the same thing. He thinks what he believes is true when you fall for fake news. No one ever says, I believe the fake news. Fake news is just an insult to undermine your opponent's point of view. How could it be that most people think there's fake news out there, but they never point the finger at themselves? And I put it to you, that's the purpose of this poll. That's the real reason $100,000 of your tax money was spent on it, to provide more evidence to call for censorship of the internet and to call for the regulation of channels like ours. That's why they're asking about conspiracy theories that are in fact not theories at all, but admitted confessed facts. The World Economic Forum does exist. Justin Trudeau himself talked about the Great Reset. Remember this clip? Building back better means getting support to the most vulnerable while maintaining our momentum on reaching the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and the SDGs. Canada is here to listen and to help. This pandemic has provided an opportunity 
for a reset. This is our chance to accelerate our pre-pandemic efforts to reimagine economic systems that actually address global challenges like extreme poverty, inequality, and climate change. Anyways, let me show you a few things in the study that are interesting before I get to the conspiracy theories part. Look at page five, where people get their main source of news. 34% say TV, and I bet people are including TV uh, that they stream on their laptop and on their phone, by the way. I'm, I don't even know if people know the difference between TV and video on their phone or their device. It's all blurred. So TV is number one. 29%, a very close second, say online. Another 16% say social media. So really, I think you can bundle all that together as the internet. Radio is 8%, social media from friends and family is 7%, and look at this, just 3% say newspapers or magazines. Isn't that amazing? And look at this, nearly half, 47% of younger respondents aged 18 to 34 mentioned social media as their main source of news either post by friends and family or by news organizations. In comparison, 21% of respondents aged 35 to 54, and 8% of those 55 plus said social media was their main source of news. I think that's why they're scared of Rebel News, my friends, because we're talking to young people through social media, through videos and Twitter every day. I'll keep going. Figure five shows why people are distrustful of Elections Canada. 10% of people say they're concerned um, cite electoral integrity, rigged elections, that sort of thing. I uh, think we're lucky that uh, Dominion voting machines aren't used up here. You can't hack pencils and paper. Regional bias, too many seats in Ontario and Quebec is the next issue, interestingly. Obviously, that's a Western Canadian concern. On page 17, they show that 32% of Canadians are worried about fraud in voting by mail. Of course they are. That's how the Democrats won the 2020 presidential election, using the pandemic as an excuse to have mail-in votes. Canadians are wise to be worried about that. Look at page 18. 39% of people are worried about people impersonating others when they vote. 35% of Canadians are worried that non-citizens are voting. I'm very worried about that. 29% of people are worried about people voting more than once. I'm worried about all these things too. I think we all should be. But what I really wanted to show you was page 20. That's the conspiracy theory part of the report. Look at those questions. I'll read the three of them. The question was asked before each one was this. There is often debate about whether or not the public has told the whole truth about various important issues. Please indicate the degree to which you believe each statement is true or false. Well, before we even get to the details, of course, we're not told the whole truth about everything. There's not enough time to tell the whole truth. The whole truth is disputed. And of course, many things are kept private or secret on purpose. So the, the question is begging you to say yes, but let me show you the three scenarios. The first one is, certain significant events have been the result of the activity of a small group who secretly manipulate world events. I think that's a pretty vague statement, but how can you really deny it? The United Nations, the World Economic Forum, the Soros Foundations, that have spent tens of billions of dollars, including in Canada, the Tides Foundation. We just saw a report that foreign foundations have poured more than a billion dollars into Canada to attack our oil sands. Now, was that for ideological reasons? Was it to protect OPEC's oil monopoly? I don't know. But I really don't know how you couldn't say that you agree with the question. I'm not saying I agree with any particular conspiracy theory, but no particular theories put forward. They're just saying our decisions made by you know secretive global elites. I don't know how you can say no to some decisions being made that way. Even just the global warming conference that happens every year, uh, it's happening next week in Glasgow, Scotland. You know the UN has these climate conferences every year. How is not exactly that exactly this? A group of global elites meeting behind closed doors, trying to manipulate foreign events. Um, I suppose some of it is in the open, but much of it is obviously behind closed doors. How is this even a question? 40% of people agree with it, no surprise. The next question they test is, experiments involving new drugs or technologies are routinely carried out on the public without their knowledge or consent. I don't know about the word routinely, We've talked before about the Tuskegee experiment where black men in America were injected on purpose with syphilis by the U.S. government as part of a brutal experiment and they weren't told what was being done to them. They were being told they were being given medicines to cure them. It was atrocious. It was a lie that went on for years. 
I don't think it's routine, but it obviously happens. And of course, we know that Facebook and other social media companies do experiments on, on you, psychological experiments, uh, technological experiments, and they don't disclose it to you. That's, this is not in dispute, this is reported. I mean, uh, in terms of routinely, what do you call it when 90% of people in a country are pressured into taking new medications that still have years of clinical studies left to do? 90% of people are forced to take those meds on pain of being fired from their jobs and banned from public life. How is this even a matter of opinion that this is happening? It's happening in real time. 31% of Canadians say yes. And here's the third question, and I don't know why Elections Canada is asking this, but here's what they ask people. The government is trying to cover up the link between vaccines and autism. You know, I have to tell you, I honestly don't know about this. I have never looked into it. I have heard uh, the accusation. I don't know if the government is trying to cover it up, but I do know this, YouTube is trying to cover up people even talking about it. Uh, here's the rule right here. This is from YouTube's rules. You will be banned from YouTube if you make, quote, claims that the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine causes autism. So I don't know if the government is or isn't censoring that. I don't know, no idea. But if you say they are, that will be censored from YouTube. I just read the rule to you. I promise they will do that to you if you talk about autism and vaccines on YouTube. They just will do that and they, they're not hiding it. By the way, Canadians who have disabilities are far more likely to think the government is abusing them than those without. Let me read, uh, electors with a disability, 41%, compared to those without a disability, 29%. Yeah, so one third more likely to believe it. I, I won't go through more of the survey. It is interesting though. I think the most interesting part of this survey shows what's on the minds of the government, especially the hyper-partisans at Elections Canada, the folks that come after me in court. They don't, uh, they, these questions that they're asking show that they know that people don't trust them. They're trying to measure that. That people feel manipulated by them. That people feel they're being lied to about health matters. The government knows this. So the government wants to test how deep those feelings are. And on some questions, the feelings are very deep. The government is curious about what the people think of it. They want to know. And the answer is Canadians are worried. That's what the polls shows. That explains why those same Canadians simply no longer read newspapers and magazines, doesn't it? Because I can't name for you more than a handful of Canadian journalists who write for newspapers and magazines who have ever shown a drop of curiosity or skepticism about those questions or others. Can you? Stay with us for more. My employer has just mandated that I must get a vaccine for COVID-19. If I want to keep working at my job as a professor, I have to take this vaccine. Here's my conundrum. My school employs me to be an authority on the subject of ethics. I hold a PhD in ethics and ancient philosophy. And I'm here to tell you it's ethically wrong to coerce someone to take a vaccine. If it happens to you, you don't have to do it. If you don't want a COVID vaccine, don't take one. End of discussion. It's your own business. Who is the authority giving this order? Should I trust them with control over my body? As a professor, I don't have to watch the news to find out if the COVID vaccines are safe. I read medical journals and I consult my colleagues who are professors of science and medicine. I've learned from doctors that there are serious questions about how safe these vaccines really are. There are questions about how well they work. Nobody's promising that I won't get COVID or transmit COVID if I get the vaccine. If I'm allowed back into my university, it's my job to teach my students that this is wrong. I'm hired to teach them that it is ethically wrong to impose an experimental medical procedure as a condition of employment. Is this right or is this wrong? I already know the answer.
That was amazing, Julie. <laughs> Sorry. Well, those are excerpts from a viral video of Dr. Julie Panessi, a professor of ethics, who was given an ethical question, an ethical quiz herself. Would she be coerced into taking a vaccine on pain of termination? It was a one-question ethics exam that she passed with flying colors, that video going viral, inspiring countless people. What we're doing as a society is not moral, it's not ethical, it's a kind of madness, and it's important to stand up, even if it costs you everything. I'm delighted to say that Dr. Julie Panessi has joined the Democracy Fund as the pandemic ethics scholar, and it will be her project to discuss ethics of the pandemic and the lack thereof uh, in the months and possibly years ahead. I don't see us getting out of this problem anytime soon. Joining us now via Skype from her home is Dr. Julie Panessi. Well, Dr. Julie, what a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, what an incredible video that was. Can you tell us a little bit more about that video? Uh, what caused you to do it? What made you go public in that way? A lot of people are sort of grappling with these things privately or in silence. Why did you go public with it? Well, thanks very much, Ezra. I, I think there are two things I have to say about that. One is that I had been working with a, a volunteer organization for months uh, before that video came out, and we're a science-based, evidence-based, balanced approach to the pandemic, and we had been trying to produce that kind of information in very rigorous article-based formats. Uh, and we were getting very little traction, very little response from the government, from our public health officials. And so we decided to try to put more of a narrative to it, more of a human spin on it and show the true cost and the true toll that these sorts of mandates uh, and heavy measures from our government uh, can, can leave people with. And the second thing I would say is I hear from so many people who say, uh, I guess I'm forced to do this. I guess I don't have a choice anymore. And I think that it can feel that way when it feels like your options are limited and that some of those options are maybe all of them are so undesirable they don't feel like they're real anymore. But um, in my situation, even though I knew I was faced with the possibility of termination, uh, it was still a choice, right? And so my, my own feeling, and I've taught this to my students and I try to live my life this way, is that when you have a decision to make, you wanna try to look down the road and think about which of the outcomes can you live with? What will allow you to sleep at night? What will weigh lightest on your conscience? And that's the choice I made. It was a completely voluntary, uh, non-coerced choice. And it's one that I am very proud of and will be happy with, I'm sure, for the rest of my life. You know, I'm so glad you made that choice. I do know that for most people, the choice is almost a false choice because I think so many people are one paycheck away from having no money yes. in the bank, not making rent, not making groceries. Uh, some people, yeah. their skill set cannot, look, if you've been working as a nurse for 30 years and you're fired because you're not vaxxed, what are you gonna do? You can't even go to another institution. Um, I don't even know if you could start up your own. So, there's, so I'm very glad that you could make that choice, but. Uh, what terrifies me and breaks my heart is I think that for the vast majority of people, there is no choice. You're, you're a pilot for WestJet, Air Canada, Flair, whatever the airlines are. If you're fired from one, you're not going to get hired from another for the same reason. And a pilot, what, what else can a pilot do but be a pilot? I, I find that for most people, the choice isn't even really a choice. I think that's a good point. And just to say that you can still make a decision is not to say that someone else isn't trying to coerce that decision, right? right? right. Right. And so and, and the problem here, um, I mean, we can only control what we can control as individuals. And I think what we need to do is to try to hold on to a Canada in which bodily autonomy and the right to make our own decisions is still possible. But and, and part of doing that is to try to open up the public debate and show that our government, our institutional mandates are, are coercive. And, um, you know, it's important we realize 
recognize that mandates are coercive because if someone was to make a voluntary choice to do the thing that is being mandated, then the mandate wouldn't be necessary, right? right. So uh, by definition, a mandate is a coercive measure. And we need to think very hard about what tolls that, um, that exact on people's lives for exactly the reasons that you've mentioned. Uh, we are creating a society in which employment is much less fluid, is much less uh, transferable than it used to be for the reasons that you mentioned, because there's nowhere left to go. Uh, and as, as we often say in moral philosophy, um, choice is the luxury of the well-off. Hmm. Uh, the more the more well off you are, the more opportunities you have, the more choices you have. But as you say, for people who are living paycheck to paycheck or who have very specialized skills, who are the sole uh, wage earner in their families, we are pushing those people into a corner. And I have spoken with so many who say, I, I, I can't get myself out of this corner without threatening the, the lives of my family. So I will take the vaccine. I know it's not the right choice for me medically, but I'll do it for my family so they don't have to. Too. Yeah, it's so frustrating. You know, I, I suppose, you know, the, the classic line of a mugger, your money or your life, you know, someone jumps out of an alley with a gun, your money or your life. Well, that's a choice. You know, you yeah, have a choice. Our government's not... Our government shouldn't be following the moral code of a mugger, though. Right. Well, I mean, that's my point is to call it a choice. Yeah, the mugger is offering you a choice. He says, here's the two scenarios. It's up to you, though. It's up to you, though. I mean, I, I was just jotting down words that until March of 2020, these were words that were fashionable, were, you know, um, all the good people said these words. These, these were what <laughs> banks would say on their Twitter accounts to seem woke. They would say, we're anti-bullying. They would say, we respect your privacy. They would all say, we're pro-choice. You know, do you have consent? My body, my choice. Respect minorities. Um, you know, avoid the tyranny of the majority. These are all things that the good people, especially, I just can't get over that anti-bullying thing. Every woke corporate leader, politician would put a little, you know, lapel pin on or would change their icon on social media to show they were really against bullying. And now how th it was paper thin, their commitment like the, now what are they doing except and they admit it. They don't say that these like let me just show you a clip. Here's Jacinda Ardern the other day. She's the prime minister of New Zealand boasting about a segregated society and saying at the end that it's not for medical reasons, it's, it's not even to force people to make the choice, it's so other people can um, be less anxious. Here, take a look at this. So you basically see this is going to be like, well, it's almost like, uh, you probably don't see it like this, the two different classes of people, if you're vaccinated or if you're unvaccinated, you have all these rights. If you are vaccinated... That is what it is, so, yep, yep. Can you describe, as you were previously hoping not to be able to, not to have to do that, I guess, when we still mm. like we could maintain elimination across the whole country, I guess that has now changed because... I think it was less, less because necessarily of the elimination determining that and more because we, of course, uh, maintained and actually we have managed very high vaccination rates generally without the use of certificates but actually what it's become clear to me is that they're not just a tool to drive up vaccines they're a tool for confidence people who have been vaccinated will want to know that they're around other vaccinated people uh, they want to know that they're in a safe environment it is a way that we can give confidence to those who are going back into hospitality or events uh, and so that is something that I think we should offer to people who have been vaccinated, that confidence that we're doing everything we can to keep them safe and that they can come back out and start enjoying those things safely. She was the head of the Socialist International Youth. She was the wokest of the woke. Now she's sort of laughing about how she's bringing a new segregation. She accepts those terms. 
And the thing, one of the things anyway, we know about segregationist systems, and this is, you know, proven historically, and you'd think that our memory would have carried this forward, is that um, the more segregation we have, the more bitterness we have, unsurprisingly, but bitterness between citizens. And so you can't have um, conditional privileges granted to some members of society and not create segregation. And you can't have segregation without a threat to the bonds that are supposed to unify citizens in a democracy. So I think we need moving forward to be very aware of what the costs of a two-tiered or a class system or a segregated medical uh, society, whatever you want to call it, what the costs of those things are. And, and we have it already. You know, we are starting, not only do we have the vaccine passports, but we're starting to see a kind of triaging in, in healthcare where some people are being people on or donor lists, for example, are being are being removed from those lists for, for refusing to be vaccinated. Uh, and I think it's not surprising that we will see the kind of bitterness and hatred and shaming that our prime minister is modeling for citizens. And we will see that trickling down to who knows what level. Yeah, I, I am shocked by it. I'm shocked by how quickly it happened. Um, and I was thinking the, the kind of person I was talking to someone yesterday who, who was mentioning a husband and wife team. They're both um, medical professionals. I think one's a nurse and the other might be two. They both, both husband and wife decided to quit. I mean, imagine the economic hit to that family. I don't know what they'll even do. But those are, what a unique couple they are that they would so thoughtfully consider these matters and make a ethical choice that causes them immediate harm and suffering and damage, that may well be the most ethical person at that entire hospital. Someone who makes the right choice at high personal cost. It seems to me that's exactly the kind of character that you want in a workplace, in a community, in a country. Um, I think it was Warren Buffett who said, uh, you know, intelligence, um, Honesty. He had three things. He said, honesty is the most important. Intelligence, hard work, and honesty. He says, honesty is the most important. You don't want uh, a hardworking, intelligent person who's dishonest. I, I'm mangling it, but he said, hire for, for character. The other things are important, but character is the building block. Um, you're getting rid of the most, it, of the people with the most integrity. You're getting rid of the Jody Wilson-Raybolds of the hospitals, of the airlines, of the banks, the people who believe in something higher than themselves, you're getting rid of all of them. And that strikes me as, as absolute madness and, and you're re removing the most ethical people from the pool. And I think a good question for people to ask themselves in, in, in this context is, who do you want for your doctor? Who do you want for your primary health care uh, manager? Do you want someone who is superb at unreflectively following orders? Or do you want someone who is aware of you know, what the rules are, what best practices in, in health care are? but who are also uh, incredibly uh, good critical thinkers and who are attentive to the evidence as it presents itself, who have integrity, who have uh, confidence in their own reasoning abilities. Um, I, I certainly know <laughs> what I would choose. And when you mention that couple, it strikes me that when we think about heroes in literature and history, um, they are not people who uh, stay on the, the, the steady track. They, they don't go with the flow. They are people who are individuals. They are people who make a decision that is not necessarily the popular one at the time. They are people who um, are willing to go against the grain at great personal cost. And in the context of, of movies and literature and history, we praise these people. We revere them. We pay to go and see movies with yeah. pe these people in them. And now in our society, we're shunning them and casting them aside and basically telling them they don't deserve to be Canadian anymore. 
Yeah, it's a terrible time. We're talking with Dr. Julie Panessi, professor of ethics, who made the moral choice to say no to forced vaccines at her institution. She's now the pandemic ethics scholar with the Democracy Fund. Dr. Julie, let's talk about that just for a minute. The Democracy Fund mm -hmm. is a new charity that for the last oh, six or nine months has been working on pandemic issues, mainly through litigation, helping defend over 2,000 people charged with various pandemic offenses, and now carefully trying to challenge some of these vaccine mandates. That's the, the mandate of the Democracy Fund so far, but there's another mandate, which is education for civil liberties. Tell me what you will be doing with the Democracy Fund as the pandemic ethics scholar. Oh, so many interesting things, I think. Uh, you know, we've talked about how there are some quite specific pointed acute microscopic problems right now to do with things like the vaccine mandates and lockdowns and, and those sorts of things. But in my mind, there are much broader issues that underlie and are the cause of, of, of those things that are really symptoms. And I think we have a crisis in our country, a crisis of civic virtue, a crisis of government transparency and accountability accountability to the citizens, a crisis in our media. And we need to start talking about some of these civic virtues, not just what you are entitled to as a democratic citizen, but what your responsibilities are. And, and I take very seriously that those responsibilities include holding your, your government representatives feet to the fire and, and demanding evidence when they ask something of you that comes potentially with a lot of risk. And I think we need to see uh, ethical questions legal questions, deep probing critical thinking questions uh, that are the, you know, the headlines of every major newspaper in Canada every morning. And, um, you know, my goal is to, to try to open up some arenas for debate in which these questions are not only allowed, but deeply respected. And, and when there are people who are committed uh, to asking them, it's not so crucial in my mind that we come up with settled answers to these questions. But that we make it a focus of debate in Canada and that we make it um, acceptable and desirable to think about what citizenship requires and, and where we're going as a democracy. Well, I'm excited about that. Of course, we love the Democracy Fund here. We're their biggest boosters. And they are a separate um, entity under the Canada Revenue Agency uh, charity rules. Um, but I'm, I'm excited the fact that you've joined the Democracy Fund full time, basically to promote pandemic ethics. We see on TV every night, I call them TV doctors. They're, frankly, some of them are loving this crisis. They love the lockdown. They don't want it to end. They love boosters and the idea of endless, you know, biomedical security state because suddenly they're very important. They're very powerful. They're very famous. They all daydream about getting a show on CNN as, you know, some, do I, I feel like the public health establishment, I'll, I'll call it an industrial complex. Every single thing that they are loving, whether it's profits or celebrity or, or power, is, is a moral hazard. And many of them, frankly, are on the payroll of Pfizer. And I don't say that as a speculative conspiracy theory. Pfizer is one of the largest lobbying entities out there. All of Big Pharma is. So to have one countervailing voice to say, whoa, what about the ethics? And I know that you, you might well be shunned by some of the mainstream media who are bought into this tomb. But I think that if you can every single day try to replicate that amazing viral video you had on interviews, in, in writing, on YouTube, I mean, go social media. If you can do these things, I think we can start to rebuild that common uh, agreed ethics that makes up part of the Canadian identity. Canadians are not bullies by nature. This is un-Canadian what's happening. And if you can help our country rediscover our ethical norms, then I think you'll be doing us a great service. No pressure. <laughs> you know, I think the thing we need to remember is just because something is possible, just because we have the technology to accomplish something doesn't mean it's right. And we need to start asking those ethical questions wherever they take us. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a pleasure talking with you. You will be on stage with me 
Dr. Charles McVitie and Glenn Beck uh, this Thursday at one of our monthly Civil Liberties Town Halls sponsored by the Democracy Fund, hosted by Charles McVitie. For those who want tickets, you can get the tickets uh, to attend in person or you can watch uh, by Zoom. We're having a Zoom pay-per-view. I really encourage people to attend. Our last one with Tucker Carlson was a huge success. It's going to be a monthly series. John Stossel is the next one. We've got an invitation into Glenn Greenwald. Um, so we, we really have an exciting speaker series. Dr. Julie will be speaking there. For ticket information, you can see the link beneath this video. Dr. Panessi, congratulations to you on your moral stand. You inspired many people, and I hope you continue to do so. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Ezra. All right, there you have it. Stay with us. More ahead. Welcome back, your viewer feedback. Someone with the nickname Riot Earth says, I feel like Trudeau is the redheaded stepchild of the World Economic Forum. One day he'll fall down the stairs in Klaus Schwab's mansion. I don't really understand the references, but... I think Trudeau loves globalists. It's like his dad. He loves being a world traveler, loves going to exotic places. I think the real story is Christia Freeland. Before she ran uh, for parliament, she was Soros's official biographer. And you can see in today's show, she was there in Davos when Trudeau met Freeland. She's still on the board of the World Economic Forum. Again, that's not a conspiracy theory, that's what she's doing. How's that even allowed? I don't know. So I, I think that there are some very real things. Here's what I tell our people whenever a crazy conspiracy theory comes up, I say, you don't have to go for the conspiracy theories because the facts that are out there are so crazy, but they're not being covered. Just cover the crazy things we can prove. We can see, hear, touch, feel the things from which there's evidence. That will keep you busy for the rest of your life. You don't have to go chasing made up rumors. Aaron Terminator says, here's another contradiction for you in terms of the arbitrary health mandates. I'm 16, still in school. Hockey and huge sporting events are open to, for thousands to attend, but my cafeteria in my school is closed. Nice one. Yeah, I was reading about schools where kids are not allowed to talk over lunch. They're literally instructed to have lunch in silence. But what restaurant in Canada makes you sit in silence? Not a one of them. I really think this is a war on children, and that's the worst part of it. Well, that's the show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here from Rebel World Headquarters to you at home, good night, and keep fighting for freedom. And let me sign off by showing you an exclusive interview of yet another pastor who was thrown in prison for breaking some lockdown rule. Here's an exclusive interview he did with Rebel News. Bye, everybody. It's okay, Travis. Where are we going now? The Lord will take care of Papa. I'm not going to see her again, I don't know, for months or years. And that's the last I've seen of my mother. And they kept saying, we can't get a hold of your lawyer. I'm having a hard time believing they actually called my lawyer. Now, the Winnipeg Remand Center is, is a cruel place right now. Everybody in the Remand Center in Winnipeg is on solitary confinement. And they say that's based on COVID. And the judge said that um, the restrictions on the church does not violate their charter rights. I could not believe my ears. Pastor Tobias Tisson is amongst the many pastors to be arrested recently here in Canada. This disturbing trend can be seen coast to coast from the recent arrest of Pastor Phil in New Brunswick to the arrest of Pastors Tim Stevens, James Coates, and Arthur Poblowski in Alberta. Luckily, today we're not here to bring you a story about a pastor behind bars. Fortunately, Pastor Tobias has been released. This took roughly 45 hours of him being in custody. 
Though this is good news for the Manitoba minister, it is not without its set of drawbacks. Pastor Tobias was able to negotiate the conditions of his release, meaning while he's not able to incite, organize, or invite anyone to an event that contravenes COVID-19 health regulations, he is able to perform regular church services as well as his duties as a pastor. Today, you're going to hear all of that and more from the man himself, Pastor Tobias Tissen, in our post-jail interview. To start, what happened? Can you give us a debrief on the whole situation? It arose yes. a couple of days ago that you were being arrested by the RCMP in Steinbeck, uh, and your family was there. Could you yeah, give us an update from then and what happened? So basically how this whole thing went down was this happened on Monday evening. Now, my mom, all of us, we're originally from Europe from Germany, that's where I was born. We moved to Canada because we were not allowed to have homeschooling there and we were persecuted for that. So we moved here and long story short, we're back at it over here. But my father who passed away last year was kind of why we, we all stayed here as family. After that, my brother already moved back to Europe and now my mother her father is still living in Europe and he's getting older and needs help. So she decided to move to Europe as well. And my other brother as well. So I'm the only one from my family living in Canada right now. So Monday night was our last evening together. We went, bought some food and went to the park to have a nice evening together. And we had good time. We ate together. We played with the children a little bit with my boys. And then when we left, you know, I had a heavy heart. My, my mother's leaving and, and all that. I didn't even think about my warrant at all whatsoever. For the last month and a half or two months, I have not been hiding whatsoever. I have been to Winnipeg. I've been to Steinbeck. I've been through the stores where I needed to go to and, you know, live normal life and nothing ever happened. So I didn't really expect anything would happen on Monday. The only thing basically on my mind was my mom is leaving. It's our last evening together. And then I got out of the parking lot and I see some people standing on the sidewalk. And even that didn't catch my attention. I was like, that's normal. And as I drove a little further, I see a police cruiser coming up. And as soon as I saw the police cruiser, you know, the RCMP, they have the big lights on the, on the roof. And then underneath there, they have this little light, really bright light. It almost shoots out at you when you see it. Like they use that to get your attention. As soon as I drove up, got closer, that light just shot at me. And I was like, what do they want? And the first thought literally on my mind was not my warrant. It was like, oh no, I'm not buckled up in my seat right now. And my son is standing in the back row you know, and, but then almost right away, it was like, oh no, this is, this is a much bigger problem here. And as they approached, came to my door, they asked for my license and I asked them what the stop was for. While we were talking, a civilian approached us and he kind of walked past so I could see him and he goes, hello, Tobias, with a nasty grin. And that was the Herald, the police chief from the RCMP. So either he himself had seen me in the park or one of his friends had reported me. But in the video, it's pretty obvious. He has a quite the nasty grin on it. The nasty grin, you know, I got you. Anyways, he told them that's Tobias. He's under arrest. Take him out of the car. So we walked back to the vehicle and you can tell in the video, my mom badly wanted to give me a hug. I, of course, heard too, because in the morning I was going to take her to the airport and I knew this is not going to be a, just a quick release. I'm not going to see her again. I don't know for months or years. And they completely denied that. In fact, the lady officer was really nasty. She shoved them around. And finally the other, the male officer told me, if you sit down in the car, then she can give you a hug while you're sitting in the car. And I was like, you know what, if that's the only way it's going to work, I'll do it. And then he said, that's a fair compromise. So I sat down in the car. As soon as I sat down in the car, they slammed that door shut. They chose not to allow it. 
and they slammed that door shut and my mom was standing outside there crying and you know waving kissing through the glass and and that's the last i've seen of my mother and they took me to the station from there and kept me in police custody till 11:30 at night and from there they took me to winnipeg police custody and all along they were trying to force the legal aid on me instead of letting me use my lawyer and they kept saying we can't get a hold of your lawyer i'm having a hard time believing they actually called my lawyer they lied to me before how am i supposed to believe them now when they say we can't get a hold of your lawyer here's legal aid that legal aid wouldn't have fought for me nearly half as hard as my lawyer did and so i kept refusing i said i'm going to wait here for my lawyer and once i did talk with them the conditions were not not good it would have it would have limited me from from going to church and from preaching and and i just couldn't live with that my conscience did not allow me to sign off on that and, and so that's the original uh, set of conditions that you would have had to agree to that's right that's the original ones and and so i said no i can't and so we did not even have a bail hearing on tuesday the first day i was in and we got scheduled for the following day's bail and so i was moved to remand and got taken into my cell there after you know the check in is such a long process there and by the time i got to remand i've been arrested for close to 20 hours i was not allowed to call my wife i was not allowed to call any pastor for me i was only allowed to call my lawyer once i got to remand i asked them if i could call my wife and they brought me a phone but in remand center you got to set up your voice you got to set up your own profile on the phone none of that was explained to me so i was trying madly to call i called like 10 times i called six different people and i never got through and once they took me to my cell i told them can you work it out for me to call my wife tonight yet and he says i'm going to try and it wasn't until the next day in the morning i was arrested for 39 hours before i could speak to my wife and and that's cruel now the winnipeg remand center is is a cruel place right now everybody in the remand center in winnipeg is on solitary confinement and they say that's based on covid so you got to spend 23 and a half hours in your cell in a 24 hour period half an hour half an hour during the day you're allowed to have a break where you can take a shower or do a phone call the rest of your time you're stuck in your cell my cell was on the second floor and and it was not it was um it was a hallway beside this the second floor and then there was a railing and the cafeteria was down below and the rooms it was not a straight wall but it was a wall where you had angles try to show it on here like it's it's angles and then your doors are at an angle you can't look straight out and my room was at the very end all i could see was the wall of the cafeteria at the end there a little piece of railing and down below some cellmates they had their doors like this where they could face each other through the door at at the angle but all i could see was just a little bit of railing a wall through my door and some of the inmates could see a clock in the cafeteria from out their room but i could i had i never had a sense of time yeah. and that's the cruel part of jail it it wants to break you in your mind your men, your mental strength is under extreme attack when you're in jail um i i was going to ask you if you thought during your time in custody that you were treated particularly unfairly because of the situation but even what you're describing i mean that that could be considered torturous for most people in general so it seems like you've gone through quite a lot in that time yes the first night especially winnipeg custody was was really nasty they keep the bright light on all night long they bang on the doors every 15 minutes 
when you're trying to sleep and and you get woken up so frequently it frustrates it really frustrates you and so and they they try to do it they try to say well we got to make sure you're doing okay because they come by the door are you okay are you okay finally i told them of course i am okay and they says well that's just our policy so it's a policy to break people down that's what it's intended to do and to give you a little example of not knowing being somewhere not knowing what the time was during the night i must have dozed off somewhere and i woke up and i was like well it must be morning and next time an officer walked by i asked what the time was and it was like 2:30 in the morning So on a, on a good news front, though, the conditions you had to sign weren't the ones originally proposed by the state. You actually have seems like a good set going for you. What can you elaborate? Yes. So the the condition was modified and and I'm really thankful for that. I didn't know that they would modify it. And I was consecrated to stay in jail if I wouldn't be allowed to have my religious liberties back and and they were changed to say that while i'm not allowed to incite or organize or invite anybody to a gathering that is in contravention of covid-19 it goes on to say to clarify this does not affect his ability to perform regular religious services and perform his duties as a pastor so i'm not limited to I'm not limited to come to church or to preach or or pastoral duties are to invite people to church. So that is protected. Anyways, I'm I'm glad to say that I'm allowed to attend and speak at rallies. Yeah. I'm just not allowed to invite or organize them. Mm-hmm. But okay. they that- they can't limit my free speech so far, thankfully. Yeah. And speaking of the church, uh, recently on uh, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, your uh, church was set to go to court uh, and we were going to find out about that million dollar ticket. Uh, what is the current status of that whole situation? That got postponed again. And in fact, they blended that court with mine for November 4th. Interesting. And we're set to be back to court. Well, it was just announced that the province of Manitoba is actually coming out of its emergency state or the state of emergency that's been imposed on it is being waived. Uh, however, all of the all the health measures have remained the same. Uh, so this, even though they're coming out of a state of emergency, it seems like nothing has changed. Is that the same for the church and for, from your perspective? That's what it seems to be like. It seems like nothing is changing on that part. They're still pushing the vaccine. They're still pushing the segregation and and the limiting of people to church unless they're vaccinated and in fact i've lost a lot of faith i had i had very little faith in our legal system anyways but i lost a lot of that little bit when we heard the decision made i think just yesterday or was it i think it was just yesterday when they said that the you know the churches that were in court in manitoba and the judge said that um, the restrictions on the church does not violate their charter rights. I could not believe my ears. And, and that's what he said. I want everybody to know that those people that are deciding those matters don't know with what grave of a situation they're dealing with. They don't know that they're going to face a God who has instituted worship and who has made us to worship him and who wants us to worship him and who wants Christians to come together to worship him, that that's his pleasure and our strength and our ability to function in life. That judge doesn't comprehend that and is going to be in for a rude awakening. And lastly, if people want to support you and your legal fight against the state, uh, where do they go? If, the, if anybody wants to support what I'm going through, there's probably multiple court cases still to come. And the JCCF um, is supporting me in this. They are funding a criminal lawyer to fight on my behalf. 
and and I so appreciate all the support, all the prayers, and so many people who have thought about me. I've I've seen the traction online, and and it's so encouraging, so heartwarming to know that there's many people that are on our side that are standing with us, and that's the way to go. We must stand together and support each other. Thankfully, we're not all in jail at the same time, and there are some people outside who are standing behind and have our backs, and I'm so thankful for that. Thanks for sticking to the end, guys. And let me remind you, though the battle is won, the war is not over. And as Tobias said himself, he and the church will be in court on November 4th. So if you want to show your support, go to jccf.ca, and you'll be able to help fund his legal fight. And if you want to show your support for other pastors across the country, check out SavePastorPhil.com, FreePastorJames.com, or SaveArthur.com to get involved. There are many avenues in which you can support, and I want to remind you to stay tuned because updates are sure to be on their way. So if you want to follow our coverage, go to RebelNews.com and you'll see the full side of the story. For Rebel News, I'm Sidney Fizzard. If you want to show your support for those who are being marginalized by the vaccine passport, go to fightvaccinepassports.com, where we're taking on strategic legal cases against the vaccine passport. If you think you have a case, send us an email and tell us your story. Or if you want to help fight back against this medical apartheid, please show your support at fightvaccinepassports.com.